This week on Race Capital, we have all three hosts. Me, Kalia Harris. Me, Naomi Isaac. And Chelsea Higgs-Wise. And we are talking fascist insurrections, COVID-19, evictions, and riding while Black. All here on your favorite podcast, Race Capital. And later, we have an interview with local activists with Community Unity in Action and founder of Leaders of the New South, Omari Al-Qaddafi. We'll get started with the Race Capital Reframe, the first of the year. On the week of Wednesday, January 13th, 2021, we start off with the local news. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets were flying. Who said it was a lockdown? All right, we're coming right back in. 2021, unfortunately, sounds a lot like 2020, y'all. So eviction watch, it looks like 197 unlawful detainers this week, with Friday being the heaviest day of 56 unlawful detainers in one day coming up. Last week, there were 161 unlawful detainer cases heard bringing our January total so far to 358 for the second week of the year. Y'all, we have already put in 358 unlawful detainers. Now, this is a reminder that unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant from their homes. Unfortunately, the CDC moratorium that was preventing many of the evictions did lapse. So evictions have started again, y'all. And we may see surges in later weeks and months, which will mean the community will need to be ready to, to organize for eviction defense. Now that the moratorium is back in place and been extended by one month, we are now seeing the impact of the lapse through the unlawful detainer numbers. A lot of the concern, too, has been surrounding the conditions that houseless folks in the city are experiencing. As we know, Blessed Warriors RVA right here is a constant, constant support to everyone that needs shelter, food, clothing. They've been going for years now. If you are tuned into the Race Capital social media platform, you'll be able to hear firsthand stories from the New Year's Eve evictions that were happening, couldn't even enter the new year without having to gather everyone and demand that the community come together for that eviction defense. Um, Unfortunately, as recent as yesterday, Tuesday the 12th, we are hearing that folks are being evicted from hotels and being put in conference rooms of hotels. You heard that right. They're no longer having their own room, but sleeping on blow-up mattresses in a conference room in a hotel. They were told at 2 p.m. this past Tuesday, they've had to move. In the couple of months, the Richmond City Council will be hearing what our budget priorities are and voting on our new budget. And as the community here in Richmond is organizing to say and demand that Richmond City Council do something for our shelterless folks, we have to understand that we need to put it in the budget and we need to make it clear that that's in our priorities. So to my co-host, Kalia and Naomi, I'm going to go through really quickly a little of the infrastructure for Homeward, because I think we know Homeward and that name pretty well. But really quickly, let me explain a little bit about our houselessness infrastructure and our quote unquote support that we have here in the region. Homeward is an agency, an organization that has been contracted with the Greater Richmond Continuum of Care. Okay, so the Greater Richmond Continuum of Care is an oversight body. It's a volunteer body that has come together with housing organizers, leaders, 
people that want to support the houseless community and they oversee a region. This continuum of care model is seen all across the Commonwealth and within the HUD agency. So HUD, a lot of people know that that's the federal level. So yes, our greater Richmond houseless support is also directly linked to the federal level. Now it's these types of, oh, it's a regional problem. Oh, it's now overseen by the federal. This is what gets our city council, quote unquote, off the hook for funding this. Because everyone believes that, well, the federal government isn't funding it. Well, the region isn't come together to fund it. Why is this a city problem? Well, here's the really interesting part about how the federal government works with this. There's always a formula, just like when they're locking us up or declaring sentences, there's a formula that's used that's not actually in our best interest. So looking up at the federal level, when they talk about funding local supports for houseless folks, they look at a count of how many people are homeless or houseless. Now, if this count were to go down, that means that, hey, you've got your problem solved. You don't need necessarily that much more money. So actually doing something to make your count go down actually decreases your funding. And that's not what anyone like Homeward or the continuum of care is wants and they want to get out of. Now, let me tell you something. If your number goes up, as well, that means that you're not doing a good job and they're not going to continue to give you that much funding either. And they're going to tell you that your localities need you to step up and match this funding. So it is actually in the best interest of these localities and regions to keep a steady number and to say, hey, we're actually keeping it steady. So when they're reporting that it's not going up, it's not going down, it's keeping steady because that's what's the important number for them to be reporting. And it's also going to be really important that as we talk about homeward, we also start to ask real questions of the greater Richmond continuum of care that has decided to work with homeward that does a lot of the coordination work, as you can tell now, has completely worked to strip all of the actual sheltering services, right? Homeward was designed and the greater continuum of care was designed to literally provide shelter. And now we have an overwhelming amount of resources for food that's not sustainable. It's just great flyers of go to this church, this church, this line, go here. And, And now it's just like that for housing and shelter only because there's CARES Act money. And when that runs out in the pandemic, unless there's something put into the city budget, they'll continue on with the finger pointing of whose problem it is. So really wanted to put that into folks' ears. Yeah, because one thing that Sister Rhonda is always saying is ask Kelly Ann Horn at Homeward where the money is going. And so it is important for us to understand and kind of power map how this is all working out and that there are other actors in this whole thing. And any failure to prioritize housing during a pandemic means murder. People will die and it's the only thing that we can be certain of. And just given the, I was down at the Days Inn on Midlothian Turnpike on New Year's Eve when folks were being evicted, you know, during a holiday. And it was incredible to see the way that the displacement of our people, specifically Black and Brown people, happened so quickly just due to a lack of resources. So not only are people becoming houseless, but they, like, when they are displaced from these hotels, when they're being evicted, they're losing, like, all access to any type of care that they could possibly have, um, including mental health resources, like, 
people who help like social workers, you know, like they're, they're losing contacts to connections. And it's so much more villainous, I think, than people might see when you when you really see what's happening, just to see people stranded, not able to use water, not able to go to the bathroom out in the cold, there are pregnant people, you know, it's uh, inhumane. And the fact that it's inhumane, simply for this desire to hold on to profit and not spend any money is absolutely just heartbreaking. My name is Savande Brown. I'm with From the Heart Events, RVA, and I also work with another organization that I'd rather not name at this time. But at this moment, we are at the Days Inn on Malothian, and this is supposed to be what the city set up as the cold, one of the cold weather shelters. When the temperature goes below 40 degrees, they said, well, come here, we'll give you a hotel room. That's been the system for the last couple of weeks. There are several hotels that they have done this program in. However, we started receiving phone calls on yesterday stating that we have to check out tomorrow. So we just said, we'll stay in place. The temperature is going below 40 degrees. We thought that, you know, it was just a rumor. Here comes today, 11 o'clock, we're getting phone calls again. They're knocking at people's doors, telling them that they, they, that they have to leave. So with all that being said, I get here and people are on the balconies with their bags, their items. We have one young lady who just checked in on yesterday. One lady who just checked in on yesterday and they told her that she had to go. We have a young man and his girlfriend that uh, they're from New Jersey or something, but they came for the cold weather shelter and they put them out the hotel. And there's one young man that we, we put in a hotel, the organization that I work with that I'm not gonna name at this time. We put, them into, we put him into a hotel and he called the crisis line. They moved him to another motel and boom, he shows up here because people started coming here thinking that they could check back in here. I went in, spoke with management. They said they had no idea why people were being put out. Unfortunately, we still have not seen anyone from Homeward, who's supposed to be in charge of this program. We have not seen anyone from the city of Richmond. And um, yeah, the lead person here, uh, I think his name is Mr. Green. He's like the manager over here in charge of this location. And we still have not seen him. So I was leaving in front of Aaron, got a phone call, hey, they're letting people back into the hotel. They say it was a mistake. There were over five hotels that they put people out of starting this morning at 11. So a lot of people left the property because they were scared that the police was gonna come or something like that. So yeah, a lot of the people have left. They probably won't be able to get back in because they're thinking that they can't be here anymore. So now you have another problem. I mean, at the end of the day, this is the time social, social workers should have been here. This is the time all the wraparound services should have been here in order to tell these people, you know, where they could go, what were other options for them. And none of that happened. So that's what caused the chaos. And luckily it was peaceful. Everything was peaceful. So, you know, I just thank everybody who came to stand in the need of people because sometimes you got to meet people where they are. And that's just basically it. And that's why I'm here. Thank you. Uh -huh. And I just want to round this conversation out before we continue on to say that we do not have to continue our memorandum of understanding our MOU with Homeward. We can actually contract with other organizations and direct that money that we do have to an organization that's going to prioritize shelter and working across the region to make sure all resources are focusing on what Naomi's talking about. And I, I just want to tell you that Naomi's right is the re only reason I can talk about what happened Tuesday is because the social workers are reaching out to me to say 35 rooms have now been evicted and we're losing folks. And I'm just right now trying to make sure people are fed and they have their things and letting you know that 
people are on the move. This is now the only resources that folks have. Chelsea, where is the transparency? Like, where do people go to actually hold Homeward Accountable to find out where the CARES Act money is going, to find out where this, like, what is happening in terms of spending and uh, spending for care and take care of these people who have nothing else right now? They're continuing to measure the spending based on the dollars and the people served. We're going to have to actually start putting some regulations on sustainability and the conditions that people are serving, not just saying that we, you know, house so many people in so many hotel rooms and continue to keep that number that way. So so we need to start really pushing the conditions in which people are, are being able to be sheltered underneath the CARES Act, as well as we've got to set up something within the city council to fund it. Because we can fight all we want about how the CARES Act money is spent right now, but when this runs out, it's going to be even worse. And so we need to put some harm reduction on the conditions and some real long-term pushes into the what the budget looks like for the city of Richmond. And I just want to contextualize this that we just heard that folks are being evicted. There was a lapse in federal protections from the CDC. There's a surge perhaps that we have not seen yet of people that have been evicted. Even in our own personal lives, have we seen the increase of folks out on the streets needing support from their community. And so hearing on the back end that there isn't any support for our community members and that there really is no way to track how folks are receiving the care and that, you know, seeing Sister Rhonda on these lives, just asking questions that have no answers from the city. And then on the other side, seeing LeVar Stoney getting all of this praise for finally including trans inclusion and in shelters, scraping the, the barrel on that one, um, and getting the support for affordable housing trust, something that is just going to grift our community even further. Like listening to that stuff and then hearing these numbers for me is just really difficult to process because it's just cruelty. And at the end of the day, the people that need the help the most the only people that are actually mobilizing around that are folks that are in the community. It's not people who have money or access to the budget. We're just increasingly seeing that, you know, disappearing people is a net positive for the city. And that is so disturbing. And like you said, Kalia, to not be outraged or disgusted by that really confuses me. I have no praise at all for Love Arstoni, the city council at all. And, and exactly to that point, Naomi, I'm going to give one more example. Just in the past seven days, I went and heard a story of someone that was staying at one of these inns. And I left realizing that this count of shelterless people that the city and the region has, the cops have it. And it's basically a snitch network. So they are now, when they need to enforce a warrant or a capus and they lock someone up, they, they hit up this list of the count and who's staying in the hotels. And then they just go pick them up, y'all, and their whole lives are changed. And I just want to tell you that this person, my the person I talked to, all of that was done for one vape pen. Nothing else was caught on them. His entire day, spent a night in jail, the judge threw out the entire thing. Okay, but yet it all started because the system that Homeward has brought us that allows this count and the this great overall system to keep it all in one place. And again, the something 
the system and the city champion them sh- themselves with is now just an access for the cops. Disgusting. Well, in other news, Virginia is preparing for a potential armed protest at the state capitol. Governor Northam is urging Virginians not to attend Biden's inauguration. Several national news outlets reported this past Monday that the FBI has issued an, an internal memorandum warning of potential armed protests in Washington and across all 50 state capitals as members of Congress call for Trump's removal under the 25th Amendment or by impeachment. The warning was reported three days after Twitter issued a similar precaution on Friday about conversations both on and off the social media platform about a proposed secondary attack on the U.S. Capitol and state Capitol buildings on January 17th. Last year, Northam imposed tight security measures for Lobby Day because the expected presence of heavily armed gun rights advocates at the Capitol and adjacent legislative office building. The leaders of the new Democratic majorities in the General Assembly banned the presence of firearms in the Capitol and Pocahontas Building, as well as Capitol Square, which was fenced off from people with firearms. The Lobby Day rally drew about 22,000 people to the Capitol grounds and surrounding vicinity. I don't think any of us have forgotten how the Nazis stormed the Capitol last year and the police protected them and Northam practically allowed it. I know I certainly haven't because I spent weeks planning a Lobby Day for the students that had to be canceled. And frankly, it was very traumatic to see what occurred after that. So the fact that these Capitol buildings are being stormed and all of this stuff, am I surprised that there's already caravans planned from all over Virginia that are planning to come to the Capitol? Absolutely not. It just bewilders me that the state can act so surprised that white supremacists show up to these capitals, these monuments of white supremacy to enact white supremacy when they continue to empower them day in and day out. And they try to front like, oh, we don't know why this is happening and we want you guys to be safe, but they never hold these people accountable. Why? Because they are an extension of the state themselves. I'm I'm so sick of the performance that is being put on. They really give us like Oscar- Emmy level performances. And we saw that type of performance happen on Monday this week during the city council meeting where they declared a state of emergency in Richmond due to these, quote, credible threats of potential protests, unquote. This legislation, when they brought it up at the meeting, everyone was signing on to be co patrons. You know, they were really invoking the fear of these protests at the Capitol to make a declaration of a state of emergency with an indefinite end that gives the city ability to have access to resources that will increase policing on the streets. It's not just limited to the Capitol. It's the entire city of Richmond. So at this point, I can't even count really on one hand how many state of emergencies the city is under. And I don't really know what that means for the average Richmonder, but we're under another state of emergency. And in other news from the city council meeting on Monday, they continued a paper that would have allowed the VCUPD and RPD to share a record management system. And that paper has been continued to the February public safety meeting. We really need to keep an eye on this legislation because 
it is very possible that by passing this, we will give VCUPD access to records that the RPD has on residents of Richmond, giving VCUPD just more leeway and leverage and information to do what we've seen that they are very capable of, which is over-policing not only Black and Brown VCU students, but also Black and Brown Richmonders on the daily. They are in communities that are far, far away from their campus, arresting people, detaining them, and putting them into jails during a pandemic. And so we need to hear more than just Mike Jones speaking out about this. It's time to take a stand. I know that I was able to catch up with city council because of your Twitter thread, Kalia. Thank you so much for putting that out there. We're talking to organizers and analysts across the country, and they're already telling us that an ordinance like this that would combine the data systems of a local university police department and a city police department is even more dangerous, particularly for marginalized communities when you have things like a predictive policing system. Now, y'all, this is something somebody told me not knowing anything about Richmond. So when they said predictive policing system, I said, oh, well, I got something for you. Richmond absolutely does have a predictive policing system. And that's why we'll definitely keep an eye on that and reporting to you all on uh, what type of other impacts that could have on Richmonders. Also at the city council meeting on Monday, the civilian review board task force was voted in by the city. This task force should have been voted in months ago. Their report is actually due in March. They will obviously have to push that day back. But the members of the Civilian Review Board Task Force are Eli Costin, Keith Turner, Ed Miller, Jewel Gatling, Angela Fontaine, Eric Nielsen, Sylvia Wood, Oliver Hale, and one other person that will represent uh, someone living in the public housing communities. So this is one step forward, and we'll continue to let you know how that plays out with Richmond. And remember, this task force is actually just set up to set up the actual civilian review board, y'all. So this is not a, a permanent board. This is a temporary one just to set it up. So we need this board very shortly to hear from us, hear from you about what we want in the community for our civilian over in the city of Richmond. A city council ordinance to turn the medians around MDP Circle into a designated park was stricken from the agenda of the council meeting this week on Monday. Under this ordinance, all five medians along Allen Ave and Monument Avenue would have become designated city parks. This just would have meant more enforcement of gun laws, more traffic enforcement, more policing. I'm glad that it was stricken. And ain't nobody asked for that. So there's plenty of efforts in the city where people would like to see an increase of green space. And none of those places were around MDP Circle. Many of Richmond may have heard, especially if you were following race capital platforms, that there was a officer involved shooting, aka a police shooting on New Year's Eve. Orlando Carter Jr. was shot three times from behind, one in the back, one in the elbow, and one in the back of the leg. It is said on New Year's Eve, per the police, that there were some traffic violations and he was trying to get away. They initially said that he pointed a gun and charged at them and that's why they shot him. But as I just said, that he was shot from behind. And so now the family and the lawyer and much of the community is demanding that the body cam be released as well as the dash cam from behind. Many witnesses, as the 
incident happened in Mosby Court are saying that one of the police officers' cars actually hit Orlando as well. And that's how he ended up with a broken right leg. So that's what I'm telling the listeners is that he has a broken right leg and a gun wound in his left leg. He is now still in the Richmond City Jail. They're trying to get him out with a ankle bracelet. Yep. On top of a broken leg and a bullet wound, he has to also wear an ankle bracelet when he gets out and wait for the trial. Another great source for this information is the Virginia Dogwood. They've been reporting particularly about Judge Cheeks and how he's been treating Orlando Carter Jr. and the family and talking to him very directly. And it the language that they're using, particularly this judge that we've had interactions in the past with, isn't that right, Naomi? We've had very heated interactions with Judge Cheeks. We know that his narrative is not there, his intentions are not there, and it's going to be a hard run for Orlando Carter. So we will keep everyone updated on what's going on. And what we're hearing from the family is that they will have to continue to fundraise to pay for the home electronic monitoring system that is $350 a month. People ask why we continue to oppose policing when they took down the monuments and they're proposing an abolition day. And it's very simple because the Richmond police still have not stopped killing, still have not stopped shooting, still have not stopped extracting money from Black communities. And it just happens time and time again. And uh, it just continues to happen in the city of Richmond that police officers are coming after Black and Brown youth and our low income and most vulnerable communities. And to finish this off that Orlando has also been charged with two felonies, one of eluding the police and one of having a firearm. Witnesses are also saying that he did not have a gun in his possession. So not only did he not shoot nor point a gun, he didn't have one in his possession when he got out the car. Now, there is said that he may have had a gun in the car, but there is no charge on him about attempting to shoot a police officer or hurt a police officer. And we're also hearing from experts that his bond was unusually high in order to make him seem dangerous, but they are still going to release him for home electronic monitoring. So the the case is fishy. The tapes are not out. The chief came out and gave a, a press statement before he even saw the tapes that he admitted to that he had not even seen the tapes. So this is something that we are going to have to continue to keep our eye on as a community. And those who see some reform in policing will often point to the fact that, like you said, someone's eluding the police or they have possession of a firearm. But we see that when white supremacists storm the Capitol and they elude police and they have possession of a firearm, they end up uninjured, unharmed and still alive. So So it's possible. And seeing that the body cam footage has not been released shows that reforms such as body cams are not effective. It does not work. It does not reduce the amount of police endangerment that occurs. And in state news, the defund Seville PD campaign has shared a statement released by the family of Xavier Hill, a young Black man from Charlottesville who was killed by the Virginia State Police this past weekend. The family says that there are many unanswered questions about what happened in the events that led up to the death of their loved one at the hands of the Virginia State Police. So... I don't really have any words except the fact that the police have killed yet another Black person in our state, and we don't have answers about what happened or why. 
And it just brings me to the new hands-free law and, you know, how we've had to continue to explain to people why traffic stops for Black folks are so deadly, not just on a national level, but we see it that the Virginia State Police continually have a record that proves that they are just so committed to brutalizing Black drivers. We saw it in, I believe, 2019 with Derek Thompson, who was also stopped by Virginia State Police, threatened with assault, assaulted, pulled out of his car just for an expired inspection sticker. These traffic stops give the police this end and all these traffic infractions give the police this way to continue to brutalize Black people. We cannot forget to mention the champion coins. I don't know exactly what these are called, but the community has uncovered that local police, which is a tradition, they create these coins after some big event that they've uh, defended something and use their state violence to pat themselves on the back. Well, one of the incidents that they are championing themselves on is that police stop in Fairfax. They have a coin for that, y'all. They also have a coin for the way they defended the monument that's still up. They they feel like they won that. Okay, so check that out and understand that this is not something that can be reformed. In national news, we'll start with our COVID watch. There are 22.8 million total cases reported nationwide, 380,699 deaths, and 222,092 cases reported on Monday. In Virginia, there are 407,947 total cases, y'all. That's almost a half a million cases. Almost 20,000 total hospitalizations and 5,477 total deaths have been reported in the state due to COVID-19. There have also been reports of hospitals in the local area diverting emergency calls to other facilities due to the high volume of patients in need of medical assistance. So there's some things that we need to consider here because it's been a few weeks since we've updated on COVID-19. The holidays happened. So Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, these Trump gatherings have occurred. People have been traveling all over the place with no masks. We still have essential workers and workers everywhere, really, that are being forced to work in person. And then, of course, everyone has kind of normalized these numbers. And so it's really gone back to business as usual. People just talking about opening schools. Local schools here are talking about February 1, back in person, five days a week. Who's signing up? Yeah. And the numbers are so high. That's the problem when I think people adopt this perspective that the pandemic is simply a medical crisis. This is a crisis and problem of capitalism because we know that even just in December, only 3 million of the 20 million doses of the vaccine were even administered. And so we see that the vaccine is being distributed unfairly, distributed at a low rate. We see that they haven't taken any actions to actually stop the pandemic. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation warned back in December that if states didn't act to bring current surges under control, then that the death toll could reach 770,000 by April 1st. So I think that they're covering themselves and acting like they're being proactive with this vaccine and not realizing that all of their motivations for profit are like exacerbating all the conditions that we're facing. And they're making it into this very like personalized individual thing. Like you aren't wearing a mask, you're going to a party and it's like, y'all ain't canceled rent. Y'all didn't give me no stimulus, you know? Exactly. And speaking of the vaccine, in Virginia, we've had a little bit over 200,000 total doses administered. Remember, y'all, that this is a two-dose vaccine, which means you 
have to go back twice in order to be totally vaccinated. So with that in mind, so far, the total is a little under 20,000 people in Virginia that have been completely vaccinated. The next round of vaccines are going to include some incarcerated people. I personally think that when it comes to the conversations on the vaccine and incarcerated folks, we really need to be listening to incarcerated folks about what they want, whether that means being vaccinated or whether that means being released from facilities and that the state should continue to focus on releasing as many people as possible because even with the vaccine, it's not going to be this end-all be-all protection for people that are still incarcerated inside of a cage. Another intersectional point about the vaccine that has a major gap and another major impact is that Virginia's vaccine eligibility quiz has been incorrectly telling Spanish readers they don't need the coronavirus vaccine. Apparently, the original text in the quiz says the vaccine is not mandatory, but then it got translated to Spanish speakers to saying it's not necessary, which is a very different translation. And if we're looking for folks straight from the Twitter hotline that are calling themselves experts, they're saying right here that someone that speaks both languages, anyone worth their salt in translating would never translate not mandatory to not necessary. That is not an easy mix up and seems intentional, end quote. So we really have to understand too about what's happening, what resources were put into this translation. And the only reason why it was caught was because Alicia Saunders over at the Virginia Pilot reported that. All right, y'all. So we wouldn't be race capital if we did not run down the events of January 6th with a little reframe ourselves. So very quickly, I'm going to do a quick rundown of the events that day. And we have to remember Wednesday, everyone woke up really excited about the Georgia senator's win and the election that everyone had been talking about for months. Who in the world knew that that is not what would be the news of the day? Well, by 817 Congress met and started to count the electoral votes. Remember, this day isn't supposed to be something that we even make a news day out of. And the next thing you know, by 12 p.m., Trump is addressing a large rally. Close to 1 p.m., Pence is now releasing a statement that he lacks authority to reject the vote. He's stepping away from 45. And the 45, you know how he gets upset, so he's tweeting. Out now, 1 o'clock, the protesters are now building up and they're watching as Congress convenes. But there is an objection very, very soon. And Mitch McConnell has a very direct split from 45, where he says if they object to the counting, it would be a harm in the democracy and integrity of the entire United States. And from there, that's when these insurrectionists completely went off, y'all. And so the police begin evacuating the Capitol by 1-20-2-15. The police are, quote unquote, some lockdown and trying to evacuate lawmakers and keeping them, quote unquote, safe. 2-30, now the D.C. mayor is had their own citywide curfew by 6 p.m. By 2.38, the only thing we've heard from the president is, quote, please support our Capitol Police, end quote, quote, stay peaceful, end quote. That's all he got. Now, y'all, by this time, national reporters are on TV all over the Twitter begging the president to come on, make this stop. Because for some reason, they have put their faith back into this man that sparked this to now end it. But by 4.15, this man is now tweeting out the most egregious video message that these national reporters also had the audacity to air, y'all. And But he did say, you have to go home now after some other ridiculous narratives that I will not repeat. By 8 p.m., the Senate 
have returns to get the vote done. It happens, but they're trying to condemn the violence later and the House resumes. By 3.44 a.m., Congress does certify the vote of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris after soundingly rejecting challenges to electoral votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. It was such a scene. Like, that's all I can say. There is a saying I think is credited to Sinclair Lewis that goes, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in the flag and carrying a cross. And when I say that that day was the embodiment of that quote, y'all. And not to underscore the fact that five people died during this event. That number does include two Capitol Police officers. Also, white supporters of Trump were killed. I mean, there's been a lot of opinions about January 6th. How are you guys reflecting on the events? I think what I'm most dealing with is attention because it feels like folks are demanding that these white supremacists are locked up that there are people tagging the FBI, trying to find and dox these fascists, which it's very difficult to hold like the abolitionist part of me and also like just, I guess, the human nature part of what's going on and my conditioning. But I think that's that's what's difficult because what I don't want is for people to just be locked up, for them to get further radicalized in a federal prison. And so I think that we should be talking about actually dealing with the fascism instead of trying to call for unity, which is all I'm seeing. Also, there's this conversation about terrorism and a lot of folks labeling these white supremacists terrorists. And I think when when you think about the way that the U.S. and the federal government has always gone out of its way to completely uh, extinguish their threats, such as like socialist parties and anarchist uprising, then it's probably fair for us to assume that because fascists are allowed to continue to run rampant, that they aren't terrorists. They aren't enemies of the state in cahoots with the state. Right. And Joe Biden is already saying that he wants to enforce legislation that aims at domestic terrorism when he gets into office. And we already know who the U.S. sees as a, quote, domestic terrorist, unquote, who they've put on these federal watch lists and called, you know, domestic terrorist groups. So I only see that as increased funding from the federal level to police black and brown people. Right, because we know that a lot of these white nationalist groups have been identified as the largest terrorist, quote unquote, threat to the American public for a while now. And yet they've been allowed to do whatever they want um, for the past couple of years. And so I just feel like the, the government's own lack of action for so long has been the catalyst for these things to occur. When we even think about Lobby Day last year in Virginia, you know, without the lack of inaction from the Virginia State Police and, you know, all surrounding vicinities, maybe this would never. So you heard that that's a reframe for everyone to take. Do not call them terrorists, call them insurgents. And, you know, Kalia, you brought up a really good point about going to jail and then further radicalizing. And I've been diving deep into the Hitler story and how Hitler was radically uh, pushed to how he came out and organized his movement was after being imprisoned and being able to sit, write the book, connect with different people and, and really push out this message. So we have to understand what history we are repeating. And another part that I really have been struggling with, but also just 
giggling about is watching white people now understand what black people have always felt about the American flag. And I really appreciated that quote, Nomi, and bringing that up, because if this is also something that white people can do right now, is if you have an American flag and you don't want to be associated with this group, you need to take it down. You need to start interrogating what it means to have kids do this in schools and to start events like this. I mean, we can all talk about the Kaepernick thing, but it to me, it was also about symbolism and that this flag has never been for us. And what that means for a lot of white people that they've got to realize what else has never been for us. And you're just now feeling that disgust with the state in your country now that, that you're just kind of late to the game on. But now how do you how do you use that to what we're always talking about here with privilege? And then finally, my last piece on that is the trickle down. Right now, folks are really, really talking about 45 and the impeachment and center. I'm even here for that. But we do have to have our own trickle down of how are we holding people accountable at home that participated in this? Are we having investigations on police? Are we looking at senators and elected officials that are doing this? And what is our long term plan to continue to look into this? Because right now for the inauguration, the federal government is having to look into the quote unquote officers and troops that are going to be there looking out and protecting the inauguration to make sure they don't have white nationalist ties. And so now we're probably going to see a whole bunch of black and brown officers, quote unquote, protecting the state. And, and, and we have to realize if we're doing that for the troops to protect our highest office in this country, then we need a whole overthrow. And again, you're not reforming that. They would need way more time than they have to thoroughly investigate any of these police forces to actually rid it of white nationalist ties. Hint, it's actually not possible. So the last thing that I want to say about this is the media is not doing its job in covering these narratives the way that it needs to be done. These calls for unity with white supremacists, literal fascists who, you know, would love nothing more than to actually bring harm to black and brown people is not the way to go praising these police officers black or white for defending the state that has done nothing but defund all of the very essentials that we need as humans that's actually just not that's not it y'all and the ways that folks are talking about even the terror and giving all of that power back to the police instead of critically interrogating why it is that the capitol police have uh, over a half a million dollar budget and they were unable to quote unquote secure this building. It's because they were complicit. We should not be passing all of these states of emergencies, giving additional money to the police and the military based on these events. We need to be questioning why they are not using their funds to do the very basic things that they should be doing. And it's the best argument for defunding the police and defunding the military that I have ever seen right on live TV. Come on, right in with my eyes. I was like, well, if this isn't just the biggest campaign initiative for our own divest, invest, whatever you want to call this, they don't need all of our money. I also urge people to be really careful of denouncing you know, quote unquote, white supremacists while praising any government institution or like Kalia said, armed forces, because those are also white supremacists, you know, that's also a white lynch mob. So just be very careful of who is getting praised, because all the praise actually goes to the black and brown people who stood their ground, who warned everyone that this would happen, who've been fighting for abolition. So there's no praise going to Joe Biden, um, who also has utilized white power domestically to hurt black folks. And, uh, internationally to hurt uh, black and brown folks. So 
just be careful who you throw it out thank yous to. And how all of this narrative can be used to criminalize Black movements, that these things will be turned on us. And so folks, just be careful with the words that you're using, the criminalizing terms that are so easy to come off of our tongues for white nationalists, and how quickly that can turn to us ending up being arrested. We have to be really careful about our words. And always keep in mind that, you know, the elite class really wants us to be uh, super hyper-focused on these individual, uh, like, white supremacists and white nationalists um, to distract us from the fact that they are also, like I said, performing white power every single day that they step into the White House, you know? Um, Just be really careful of who who the real fascists are. It's a system change we have to demand, y'all. It's the whole system. So now we're watching what the people that we've elected to, quote unquote, protect us and provide security for us, what they're going to do with the impeachment or the 25th Amendment. I'm going to tell y'all right now, I don't even know what these options mean. My first, I know that this is something we have, people are saying we have to do for precedent. I'm also really just wondering if Pence is president for any amount of time, is he going to pardon Trump for many of things? What does that do for the writing and the archival of history? And is any of this just performative and could we be doing something very different? But I don't know. Those are my thoughts i know we need impeachment and like i'm an advocate because like i'm not here you know rooting for trump but at the same time it's actually really frustrating that they only ever attempt to seek impeachment when it is a violation against the establishment party or joe freaking biden i'm so sick of this man being the catalyst for impeachment when we have trump doing committing the worst inhumane atrocities against black and brown indigenous people for over four for four years now and there was never there's never been a call for impeachment that didn't involve him somehow disrupting the establishment class or coming after them. And honestly, I think a lot of it is distracting from the fact that we do still need stimulus checks. $2,000 would be awesome if it could be retroactive. People are being evicted. There's a lot of stuff that is happening in our material lives. And all that the, the mainstream media is playing on repeat is impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. So it's we're back on that, that narrative loop. And while that's happening, the Trump administration is still passing through some last gut punches as they go. So they just put Cuba back on the list of state sponsors of terrorism, despite the United States being being the biggest perpetrator of violence in the world, we've put Cuba back on this list and it's reversing an Obama era decision that removed the label over five years ago. And so the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Monday accused Cuba of, quote, granting safe harbor to terrorists, quote, and attacking the country's support for Venezuela. So, right. Y'all notice how terrorism only means socialist. It never means that we are the richest country in the world and we got hundreds of thousands of people dying from COVID-19. Like, is that not mass violence worth, you know, worth interrogating? It's just interesting. Yeah, I don't think we have any room to speak on who is a state sponsor of terrorism. <laughs> And moving on to international news, we have a few reports out of Bolivia as Evo Morales is making his return and the MAS party is bringing great change from the coup regime that had taken over there for a while. So this is coming from Bolivia's news source, Kawashun News that Bolivia's government has imported a shipment of 650,000 COVID tests, which will be available to the population for free. 
the coup regime carried out just 230,000 tests during their whole time in power. On top of that, Russia's Sputnik V vaccine was sold to Bolivia without intermediaries at the exact same price as listed by the manufacturer, which is under $10 per dose. The Russian company, unlike others, has not negotiated different prices by country. In other news in Bolivia, media outlets that were forced to close during the coup regime are opening back up, so the radical news networks are coming back into power, which is great. And following the January 6th violence here at the Capitol, Evo Morales and other leaders from the country spoke in solidarity with people in the U.S. and against fascism and racism. Shout out Bolivia. Lastly, in international news, the World Socialist website released an article stating that global food prices could rise and spark social unrest. The U.N. warned that December saw global food prices reach a six-year high, with analysts expecting prices to continue to rise in 2021, fueling inflation and adding to the pressure on families as hunger surges throughout the world. This is particularly acute for the world's poorest countries that are teetering on the brink of debt, default, and have no money to buy or subsidize food and little or no social safety net to cushion the blow to family budgets. Well, that's really awful. And I think that we're going to keep seeing the international impacts of COVID-19, and just our crumbling capitalist economy on the most impacted people in the world. Right, because a lot of these impacts that we're seeing from the pandemic could be avoided. You know, we don't have to have more people going to houselessness and suffering from hunger and poverty. That is a byproduct of capitalism, working, not failing. Yeah. And that is all for our Race Capital Reframe this week. My name is Omari El Qaddafi. Um, I'm uh, a member of the Executive Committee for Community Unity in Action. Uh, I'm also a housing organizer with uh, Legal Aid Justice Center. Omari is back on Race Capital to revisit his 2019 federal complaint that he filed after the transit redesign here in Richmond. Before we let Omari update us on the latest, let's catch back up with a short clip from our 2019 episode when Omari first filed the complaint and others were really only beginning to feel the effects of the city's newest disinvestment strategies. Most people in the city, I don't think, really even knew what was going on. You know, right. we just saw, you know, in the neighborhood, oh, they're taking away these stops and stuff. Like, like why? You know, so, but it was at that point where I found out that it was tied into this whole new plan to redesign the whole network. And then that was when I noticed, oh, they're talking about removing entire routes and they're talking about taking entire, you know, streets and neighborhoods out of uh, coverage. Well, when it came out, I pretty much was saying the same things that I had been saying to them for, you know, some time now is that I felt like there were some potential violations of civil rights going on. It was obvious that the community was being negatively impacted. People were just, oh my God, it was it was crazy when, now that I remember, it was hot. 
Yeah. It was hot when that when that last June when the bus started. And it was just dissatisfaction just all over the community. Like people were just, you know, there were no benches anywhere. Nobody knew where to go. Right. It, it was it was crazy. People were, you know, it's a crazy time for the city. Yeah. Center for Urban and Regional Analysis, they came out with a, a report that pretty much just confirmed everything that we had been saying for a couple of years now that black and low income people in the city were negatively impacted by the new design. So the report claimed that 22% of low income neighborhoods in the city lost coverage. You know, in this city, the way that transportation affects people's housing choice, like we have to really pay attention to that kind of stuff. You know, I don't think it was, it wasn't just coincidence that their original plan was to remove all of the routes from inside of public housing. You mm. know, there would have been no, if it wasn't for us pushing back, there would have been no routes left inside of any public housing in the city of Richmond. When I read their reports, their reports before they even started planning said that that Mosby and Wickham route, it was one of the most efficient routes on the entire system. Jesus. You know, it's just crazy that, to see a plan being attempted that contradicts data that they themselves have, have put out. And, and so what I really think that that was about was taking, like, directly taking away resources from a poor black community in order to uh, fund other things in the system. Well, they certainly know how to divest and invest when it's to their best interest. So Amari, explain a little bit about your federal complaint under the Civil Rights Act and explain what exactly is Title VI. So Title VI is Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Every transit system has to conduct a service equity analysis when they're going to implement changes, and, and that's to ensure that minorities and low-income people won't be negatively impacted more so than the general population. I, I think it's a testament to the work of Martin Luther King. A lot of people will just talk about this Civil Rights Act like it's something that happened and, oh, you know, but it's, it's really something that we have to really consciously stay on people about the Title VI analysis that GRTC did before implementing the system. There's a couple of major areas of concern with the way that they conducted their Title VI analysis. Why does it appear that they are not following the guidance of the FTA when it comes to the Title VI? I really would like for anyone to explain that one to me. That, that that's a, a really easy question that you know for a consultant, for an advocate, for a GRTC executive, right. or anyone to answer. When you read the guidance that was sent out by the FTA for how you conduct a Title VI analysis, it says that when you're making changes to an existing system, you you're supposed to use the actual ridership data. The service equity analysis that was conducted by GRTC, the way that they counted the number of people who would be impacted by the bus is that they use census data, which is, let's say, for example, the Monument Avenue bus. Mm -hmm. The Monument Avenue bus runs along Monument Avenue and everything. So if I'm using census data to say who's riding that bus, then I'm essentially, I can, I can include all of those people that live on Monument Avenue in the you know, million-dollar homes and stuff. You know, I, I'm including them in, as a part of it. Not Monument Avenue. Meanwhile, are other advocates in the city 
calling this progress? Specifically, the white transit advocates. What are they saying about this? There are advocates in the city, the pe people that are supportive of the changes that happen. It's like, if they see that the system is inequitable and they'll say, oh, you know, th this new system is, is pretty great. You know, yeah, yeah, it, it does have a few issues, you know, but we just need more funding. And there is another, there is a black person mm. and, uh, and other black people in the community that are saying, hey, this thing is negatively impacting us. Hey, this stuff is a, a racist. It's a civil rights violation. But then they still continue to support it. It's like, am I, do you feel that people are lying? You know, or do, do you not even feel that you're being racist by supporting the racist system? Right. You know, and it's, it's really crazy that the world of... Uh, you know, so-called allies and advocacy and, and well-meaning people. Kind of what led to the creation of CUIA was the fact that other organizations that might be in the area weren't really allowing that space for, for real advocacy, real authentic advocacy. to invite you back on race capital because i want to revisit your work from 2019 with your federal complaint yeah so recently i reached out to the federal transit administration and they are the federal body that oversees civil rights complaints against transit systems in the united states to find out the status of my complaint so uh, their Office of Civil Rights, I have filed a complaint with uh, them. I checked with them to find out what the status of the complaint was because, you know, they hadn't been communicating with me. And every previous time that I checked with them, there was really no update. So when I checked with them, which was in December of 2020, uh, they said, oh, well, you didn't get the letter uh, back in March. We resolved the complaint. And so they sent me the letter that they had sent to GRTC. And the letter, it said that they could not conclude definitively that a violation had occurred, but they, they issued some co required corrective actions for GRTC um, and their civil rights, Title VI civil rights program. And so one of the big things that I found in the letter that the FTA had sent to GRTC was that they really acknowledged that there were some key issues with the way GRTC was conducting their service equity analysis. Uh, they, they, they flat out actually recommended that GRTC scrap the current methodology that they're using. Uh, right now, GRTC is for some reason uh, utilizing a, a, an analysis that's 
usually used in employment law situations. Mm. Uh, and the FCA, they don't have any guidance about how that would be applicable to a transportation type of uh, environment. And are they recommending a certain type of model or do they recommend a certain type of model? The FTA allows a transit system to analyze the census population and the ridership population, you know, as, as I mentioned in, the, uh, in our previous show. Uh, they have told uh, GRTC that doing ridership surveys and, and measuring the ridership versus using the census population is probably going to be more accurate for them. They actually repeated to them what I had said to them. While either census data or ridership surveys are permissible, origin destination ridership surveys tend to be more accurate as people who live in particular census tracts do not necessarily use public transportation. And that's pretty much the crux of what, you know, my complaint was saying and what the community had been saying is that just because these buses may ride through a, a white neighborhood or an affluent neighborhood, you should not be counting them as the ones who are impacted when you make changes. You should be focusing on the actual people that are riding the bus. Would you look at that? Right. It's interesting they use an employment model. Again, reminding everyone we number one in business around this Commonwealth. So have you heard any word from GRTC on their moves after this or? Uh, well, I went to GRTC's website to see if they had implemented the corrective action that was required of them. The FTA wanted them to put that inside of their latest Title VI plan update. Um, that's something that transit systems do every three years. GRTC submitted theirs in October. I looked at that just to see if they had been compliant with what the FTA was requiring of them. And I know some of it, it, it still leaves further questions. This new Title VI plan, number one, uh, it's starting to seem as though, I don't know, GRTC may not fully understand what type of analysis is supposed to be performed. In the FTA's response, they actually said that even if GRTC was using that employment methodology, they're still misapplying it to the current situation. Like they're not even doing the, the, the math correctly to really get a meaningful result. The FTA basically said, okay, let's assume that you guys are using the population. You guys are using census data instead of the ridership data. Although we, we recommend that you use the ridership data. Okay. We're going to say that you guys are using the population data. So show us how you are comparing the majority black census blocks to the majority white census blocks when you are doing your analysis. And I don't see that in this title six plan. They've taken the total population of the city or the service area, but they're taking the total composition of the entire area and saying, okay, if we make these changes, it's only affecting this percentage this much, but you're not really comparing the different impacts. And that's the desperate impact. Right. <laughs> right. right. 
Omari, you said you don't think they understand, but I mean, how many different ways can you screw this up without this being on purpose? Well, um, you know, we could call this a a typo or something. I I know that when you look at the Title VI plan, uh, GRTC's recent Title VI plan, at least the, the version that I got off of their website, they really put the wrong definition for disparate impact. They, they start saying that it's uh, something about, you know, low-income people and, and measuring those in the populations and whatnot, but disparate impact is actually about racial groups being discriminated against, and the disproportionate burden analysis is the one that's about low-income people. So I don't know if this is, maybe it's a draft version or something, but there's other stuff going on in here, uh, maps that should be required. FTA requires you to show route maps that are overlaid over racial composition maps. And I don't see where they've done that. So in the service equity analysis, um, the FTA has a requirement and they say that when the transit provider determines that the correct population to use is the census block, they should be including in their service equity analysis prepared maps of the routes that would be reduced, increased, eliminated, overlaid over a demographic map of the service area. So in order to study the affected population. You know, just looking at a map with routes on it, that's not where the analysis really occurs, but that gives you just a quick visual summary to be able to see it. And it seems like several places in the documents that GRTC is producing, that summary impact is not really being displayed. I'll tell you one thing, um, as a part of your Title VI plan, you're required to list each major service change that you've done in the past three years. And this major service, there's certain criteria for major service change. Like, you know, it's a certain percentage of a route gets reduced or a certain uh, uh, running time of a a route gets reduced or something like that, you know, um, then those would trigger major service change. So GRTC, they say that they eliminated 27 routes. Uh, They took away 27 routes when they were uh, doing... Uh, the the redesign. So if they took away 27 routes, you should have 27 service changes. You should be able to show 27 major service changes, you know, because each major service change requires a separate service equity analysis. What GRTC has listed in their Title VI plan is system redesign, but it's nowhere in this document is it defined what that is. It doesn't meet the definition of a major service change by GRTC's own definitions. Then when you look at the document, it doesn't look like, oh, we removed 27 routes. Exactly. We didn't have 27 major service changes. We actually just had this one. Right. And that's interesting of how that would get by of whoever oversees those types of Title VI plans for localities, transit areas. What it seems like to me is that And I know that in some spaces it works this way where an agency, they won't act 
on behalf of a citizen. But if a citizen comes and says, hey, I see this in this document and it's wrong, then they have to uh, investigate it. Just based off of the letter that they sent to GRTC, it's not clear to me that they would even be proactively uh, monitoring any of it, even the corrective action. Gotcha. Wow. Um, are there any things that you can list off of the corrective action plan that you think are relevant to this conversation that they were either required or recommended to do? So when GRTC increased the threshold burden for disparate impact uh, before implementing this new system, you know, they raised it from 10% to 20% uh, allowable impact. FTA is now asking that they explain how those thresholds are most likely to uh, yield meaningful results. And they're asking that they explain it in the context of the characteristics of the transit system. And I think that if you look at the characteristics of the transit system and you see that the population is, uh, or the ridership is overwhelmingly minority or overwhelmingly black, then you will see that even a 20% impact is gonna be a lot to one race of people. Uh, They also required uh, them to explain how their methodologies allow them to compare the minority population census tracts to the non-minority population census tracts. I don't see that in the Title VI plan. And maybe I'm, uh, I'd love for that to be shown to me by GRTC. Uh, they, they had also asked them to uh, explain their plan for uh, doing ridership surveys and uh, how they'll allow people to have access to it. Are those requirements or recommendations? Those are requirements. And I'm just summarizing, but yeah, those are what they're requiring GRTC to do in this most recent Title VI plan that they put out. Are there target dates of completion of this corrective action plan? It should have been in October when they submitted it. Right. So if it's not compliant right now, the next step might be to follow up on the original complaint or to file another one. That's a possibility. And definitely referring to that corrective action plan because that... I wish I could explain what GRTC has done like when they're doing their analysis, I've been making, I guess, small examples to plan with numbers to, to see how I could show someone in a sample scenario of what they're doing versus what they're supposed to be doing. I'll tell you what FTA said. They said that even if GRTC is using that rule, uh, which is the, it's called the four-fifths rule, the, that's that employment law stuff. GRTC's application of the four-fifths rule to assess for disparate impacts or disproportionate burdens was not correctly applied. So GRTC says that, let's say that the population, the minority population in their service area is 53%. You know, we know that the ridership is much more than that, but this is what GRTC is saying. They're saying, okay, our limit for disproportionate burden and uh, disparate impact is 20%. So that means that if we subtract 20% from the 53% and we only hurt Black people 33%, hey, we're still within the range. 
But what, what you're actually supposed to do though is compare how much the change affected the black population compared to how much that change in the white population and you compare those two numbers and you see if that change is above 20%. Right? No, you're, you're trying to find the numbers of the desperate impact. That's all you're doing. Um, <laughs> that's literally all you're doing because it's the same thing that we, the kind of math that we do for marijuana impact on okay. white on white users versus black users and who's convicted when and who's not. Is I don't know the desperate impact of how more often black people were arrested in marijuana versus white people unless they compare the actual impact. Right. You don't just you don't just say, oh, there's 50 percent black people in the population. And that's, then, not that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. All right. Well, thank you, Amari Akadafi with Community Unity in Action and Leaders of the New South bringing us the updates of our uh, system right here with GRTC. I know we will need you to come back with an update soon. And if you are on the book of faces, um, how can they find you, Omari, to uh, keep up with that as well as your other social media and the other work that you are doing truly across Richmond spectrum for people's human rights? I put a lot of good content on leaders of the New South Community Council for Housing on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, RVA New South, on Instagram, leaders of the New South. All right. Well, thank you, O. Well, that's all for Race Capital this week. Catch us next time right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. I'm Chelsea Higgs-Wise. I'm Kalia Harris. And I'm Naomi Isaac. Tune in to Race Capital next week. We won't know what's happening, but we know it's racist. Black people, what y'all gonna do? Black people, what y'all gonna do? Black people, what y'all gonna do when you wake up and find that you're dead with maggots and roaches and the pus out of your prostituted minds and white deathly hands massaging your hearts with red hot branding irons? They're writing songs of love, but not for me. They're writing songs of love, but not for me. Here we are, the employers of all love, but yet we are working overtime to cover up our loneliness. John Coltrane died in vain, a love supreme. John Coltrane died in vain, a love supreme. Where are the low staccato screams of black unity? John Coltrane died in vain, a love supreme. Where are the higher octaves of righteousness and truth? John Coltrane died in vain, a love supreme. Where are the high registers of peace and love? John Coltrane died in vain. What are black people doing enough of that they shouldn't be doing? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Black people, what y'all gonna do? Black people, what y'all gonna do? I see.